Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. In today's episode, I'm welcoming back Ellis Amder to the show. He's going to go into some detail about Aikido's history and background. Before we get started, please consider supporting this podcast by liking and sharing it. I'm also thrilled to announce that our Spirit Aikido online program now has over 215 videos. In some of the more recent videos, I cover defenses for headlocks and guillotines and ways to work these into your live training with Aikido. Another option is to contribute any amount you like through the PayPal tip jar. Even small contributions are greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. Well, I'm very excited to have Ellis Amder back uh, on the podcast. We're going to be addressing a listener question today about the lineage of Aikido and the history of where it comes from. Uh, so welcome back, Ellis. It's great to have you here. Good to see you. Yeah, um, so I guess in terms of the question uh, that, we, that I was asked was uh, describe the, the history and the lineage of Aikido. And the first thing that came to mind, um, obviously, was the term Aikido itself, that it's a, it's a much broader term than, than most Aikido students believe it is. Um, I know I was told originally that, you know, it was an art that was... Uh, created by Morahai Weishiba, and that it was basically the ownership of that family that, that, that had it. But as I came to learn more, and partially by reading some of uh, what Ellis has written about the history of Aikido, it opened a lot of doors about understanding something more than just this was an art that one man created. So maybe you could get started on the, the, the origin of the word, word Aikido. Well, it's... Uh... It's complicated and simple and <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Uh, okay, so there's a term kiai. Kiai is a, a, a quite old term. Uh, ki is a, a one of these these terms that means innumerable things. And rather than that being sloppy, it's actually wonderful that you. Um, uh, the fact that key can mean energy, it can mean life force, it can mean attitude, it can mean uh, intention, uh, it can mean a specific description of the use of a body, all using the single term. Uh, it's, I think, one of the most wonderful things about Japanese, but even more so where it comes from Chinese language, is the connections they make between um, different existentials in, in the universe. Uh, when you look at the character ki, you basically have um, in the original form rice being cooked in a pot. And so it has this nuance of steam, steam being one of the forms of water. Uh, you have water, steam, and ice. And so you have this term that's enormously mutable. I is a term, uh, in its original form, it means connection. Um, so connected ki and connected ki, ki I is we usually think, okay, that's a shout, like, hey, like that. But, but ki is any direction of your will in a way that affects another person and also simultaneously affects yourself. So if I'm in a sword fight and I begin to look frightened, on one level, okay, that's my emotion, which you may take advantage of. But let's say I use that as kiai jitsu, and so I am frightened. I let you see I'm frightened, but I retain at a deeper level um, 
a direction uh, uh, to kill you. And so because of the fright you see, you become overconfident, right? And then you step in and as I step back in apparent fear, I cut you, right? So ki is a manipulation of yourself and a manipulation of the other person. I just saw a great uh, MMA fight. I don't know how long ago it was, uh, but this one guy, they were do doing stand-up and this one guy was just being destroyed. Um, he, he knee kicks, jumping knee kicks to the head, punches, kicks. And when he would try to attack, he was falling short. And it was clear that his opponent was more skilled on every level and more powerful. And, but he had a good chin. And so he's getting battered around the rim ring. And then finally, uh, the, uh, uh, um, the aggressor uh, throws a left and the guy drops to the ground on his hands and does a reverse spinning kick from the ground mm. and catches him right in the temple and knocks him out like a perfect capoeira move. Okay. And, you know, it wasn't accidental. He used his lack of skill. He used the fact the other person was more, was faster, more powerful, more skillful. Um, all he had to do was survive not being knocked out so that the other person became overextended or overconfident. Mm. Right? So that would be an example of Kia. Uh, shouting in a certain way uh, could startle somebody, but it also organizes yourself. Um, so again, these things go all over the place, uh, all the way to the this mystic idea that you, when you do kotodama, the sacred syllables, um, you affect the universe. But what you definitely do is you chant in different ways, you affect your own physical organization. And see, I go all over the place. Uh, the early, the late 19th century, early 20th century strongmen, Albert Saxon, Arco, Maxic, the Mighty Adam, all focused on breathing. They all had breathing as a part of their courses. And um, uh, they would breathe in very specific ways, which would cause tension and re relaxation within their musculature so that they could focus on particular ways of power development. So that's Kia. Every Japanese martial art, every martial art all over the world is imbued with kia. Now, then there's the term aiki. The term aiki goes pretty far back. And, you know, I don't want to overwhelm people with a lot of uh, language or over arcane references. So I'm going to refer people who are interested in going deeper uh, into my book, uh, Hidden in Plain Sight, where I go page after page on who started what when. But one place we start to see the term Aiki is in sword schools. And so Aiki is the character's ki in reverse. And what's interesting is in both Yagyu Shinkage-ryu, a famous school, and in Itoryu, they warn, don't let yourself be aiki So rather than being, I'm going to put Aiki on you, they were cautioning, don't let you, don't let yourself arrive at a state of Aiki with another person. And what that would mean would be, I allow myself to start responding to your rhythm, right? And so you can see this, for example, in a good boxing match, 
where one boxer establishes a rhythm and the other boxer gets locked into that rhythm. As uh, the jazz critic Stanley Krauss said, boxing is the only activity when you get somebody else to participate in their own knockout. That's a good description. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, you, you hear about being caught flat footed. What happens is I get caught in your rhythm. You start circling around. I start responding to it. And after a while, my, you know where I'm going to be next because it's inevitable because I'm stuck in your rhythmic pattern. Mm. I've been Ike. Mm. And then basically you arrive at that point first. I'm stuck because I can't get out of that point. And being caught flat-footed is I'm not able to move away from the place where I'm about to be hit. Mm. So the sword masters realized this and they talked about the last thing you want to do is be in a state of Aiki where the two of you are unified with one another because if you are unified um, the other person knows where you're going to be next. Um, some schools uh, for example Arakidu has a term soshin which means the same thing different characters and again I'm not going to break down all the characters but you want to put somebody in a state of soshin where I dominate you so you start following my rhythm. Mm. And then at will, I break the rhythm, which um, I, I do something that is counter to your expectations. Now your intention is disrupted because you thought you knew your place. What you really knew was what I wanted. You understand what I mean by that, right? Yeah, it, and what you relate to, I, I, when you talked about the strongman who, who, who had internally the, that blend of, of relaxation and tension I see that as being having the tension between two opponents. If we establish a rhythm and, or let's say I, I draw you into my rhythm and I make you feel comfortable being there. And then I change the rhythm that creates tension. So there's that yeah. same relaxation and tension going on uh, between the two uh, fighters. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, one term sort of leads to another Kamai, which is stance is a way of establishing a, uh, some sort of a link or a particular relationship with someone. The way I sit when I talk with you establishes a particular dynamic, which can be unconscious on my part, or it could be very deliberate, right? Um, you know, these awful books on how to succeed in business tell people how to take a power stance or all that kind of stuff. It's really, that's come on. Right? Mm -hmm. It's nothing, you know. Okay, so the term Ike had been floating around uh, for quite some time. Uh, then you get, you know, you start saying, well, what's the lineage of Aikido? You have to get into the lineage of Daitodium. Mm -hmm. uh, there's new data coming out about the history of Daitodium, which is not firmly rooted right now mm. as of yet, but it's probable in about 10 years, there's gonna be some more concrete data uh, about Takeda Sokaku, where he really came from, what he really learned. Mm. Um, the, it's pretty clear there was no Daitodu before Takeda Sokaku. Mm. The very fact that a guy named Yoshida Kotaro, one of his students, had to teach him the proper name of the school he was teaching, mm. because he had an alternative reading for Daito, which really didn't fit the kanji. Okay. Now, were there other, because as I understood it, Daito Ru was this, an Aiki Jiu-Jitsu 
style. Were there other Aiki Jiu-Jitsu's at that time, or was that just one brand of Aiki Jiu-Jitsu? Or when did the Aiki term well, so come that, into that, play? So that's what's tough. There, a lot of Jiu-Jitsu schools had, and I'm going to use the term in its broadest sense, something that we call internal strength training. Mm. Um, not all did. But for example, Yoshinu, which was the most prominent school in Japan, the most prominent jujitsu school. If Jigoro Kano hadn't come around, Yoshinu would have basically um, developed what we call judo on its own. Mm. Uh, it was Yoshida, uh, Jigoro Kano was um, uh, the guy who caught the spirit of the age quickest and most effectively. But there was a school in Kyushu called Takanuchi Santoryu, which was um, the Yano family were like the Gracies of Kyushu, like the Gracie Jujutsu of Kyushu. And they were developing something that was going, would have turned into something like Judo. Maybe the rules would have been different. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was a Yano Takeo of, of that family who moved to Brazil and is one of the unsung creators of Brazilian Jujutsu. Oh, really? And, okay. And, and he and George Gracie, used to have, they probably had about 30 fights, half of which were uh, works and half of which were honest. Mm. But Yano, and Yano was the guy who brought Kimura to uh, Brazil. So it all, it all links together. Sure. Uh, but so Yoshinyu um, had a teaching which they called Naidiki. They had specific exercises to create a Yoshinyu body. And in their lineage, they, they assert that it was derived from Chinese martial arts practices. Uh, and Yoshinu does have some connections to uh, uh, um, Chinese practices. Uh, they were they developed in part in Nagasaki, at least one line of Yoshinu. And, 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 and so uh, the Naidiki practices are solo exercises to build up specific types of power and organization. Um, an offshoot, which I'll get to a little bit later, is Tenshin Shinyoryu. And they talk about packing key, uh, specific breathing methods to strengthen your body in a particular way. And some of the so-called kata of Kano are actually lifted from uh, Tenshin Shinyoryu. Mm -hmm. um, and in Tenshin Shinyoryu, they look like kind of a hard Tai Chi. You know, they'll do these circling movements while breathing, so for example. So um, internal strength training was very common in different schools, uh, sword schools as well. <clears throat> uh, and that leads to, I'll get to in a second, Onahei Todu, and I'll talk a bit more about them because it's so important to this. Um, so at any rate, um, there were many schools that had different types of specialized physical training. Um, what makes things kind of hard to explain is, so the term Aiki Jiu-Jitsu was not, um, it's the first textual reference to it in a Daito-Ryu context was a guy named, um, oh shoot, I'm doing one of my blanks, one of the most, Sagawa. Sagawa um, Kemmochi, I may have forgotten the name, but basically the famous Sagawa Yoshiyoshi's father um, mm. in his diary, uh, where he was training with Takeda Sokak in 1912, I believe, apply Aiki here. Um, so that was the first reference we have to that. Daitoryu was originally called Daitoryu Jujutsu. Okay. 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 Um, so 
we get, we come to, I, I don't want to recite Takeda Sokaku's whole history, anything like that. Mm -hmm. But what was very important to him was his training in Onaha Itoryu. And Onaha Itoryu is one of the most significant sword schools in Japan. And they had a very specific training in what's called Kiri Otoshi, which would be the epitome of Itomi. Two objects can't operate the same space at the same time. Mm -hmm. And if one object has more integrity than the other, you cut through that other object as if it wasn't there. Mm. Um, and so they had very specific training where you take a kamai and imagine I'm holding the sword out more, but, uh, but, but you make a connection between your hara or tanden, the point between the eyes and the point at the tip of the sword. And you would stand and just, it's like Chinese pole standing, except now specific to a sword and all your intent is linked one, two, three. And so they had this very specific training. Um, it's recently been more subject to discourse that the principles of Daitoryu in the way that Takeda taught, not talking about the wristy twisty stuff, but the basic principles are Onahei Itoryu. Hmm. And, and, and that's where Takeda probably um, uh, derived those basic principles from. Hmm. It's there's a whole question about what jujitsu he may have studied or not, and I've had a theory. Uh, his father-in-law was a very, very famous uh, samurai of the uh, uh, period right before the Meiji period developed. His name was Kurokichi, and Kurokichi. God, I'm forgetting names today, so forgive me for all that. Okay. Yeah, look, sorry, looking at my book. Um, uh, at any rate. Takeda, as a small boy, was adopted out at his father-in-law's um, uh, house. And among other things, he was a master of uh, Inegami Shimyoryu, which is actually a jujitsu application of Itoryu principles. Mm. If he studied that, he only would have studied for a few years. Mm -hmm. um, again, there's some data coming out which suggests the possibility he may have studied some jujitsu I can't remember the name of the style, with the father-in-law of his first wife. But these claims are, uh, there's, there's been no textual support for it. The guy who claims that's this really odd guy up in, uh, uh, he's a hobbyist who got obsessed with Daitoju history. Mm. His books are all over the place. Um, so it's hard to tell where he gets his information. Okay. But at any rate, Takeda had to have studied something because on a jujitsu level, his his locks and, and things are not that different from locks from other schools, right? Um, what Takeda, another evidence of his reliance on Itoryu is a very common demonstration uh, that you see in Daitoryu and Aikido is the teacher in the center of a circle of people and then they all attack simultaneously. Uh, the guy in the center sort of steps between through two of the attackers ends up on the outside and they end up as they pursue him like strung like fish on a line. And then he throws them or cuts them down one by one, that Aikido multiple attack thing, which can look pretty silly sometimes. The principle makes more sense in a sword fighting sense hmm. that you don't wanna have people, two or three people attacking from two or three directions. You move in such a way that if you move in an ellipse, people begin to line up 
-hmm. And if you can cut people down one by one, that makes more sense than just trying to deflect people because you haven't heard them so they can just come back at you and eventually they would pig pile you. But with weapons, it makes more sense. That hapo bunshin, that, that uh, attack on all eight directions is a daito, uh, sorry, it's a, a, a onahai itoryu technique, a sword technique, which got incorporated in daitoryu and then into Aikido. Mm. Okay. So um, Takeda Sokaku's grounding was the probably the principles of of uh, onahaitoryu, which is irimi. Aikido, uh, I'm sorry, aiki is a very subtle application of irimi. That just, for example, just at the moment the person grabs, you are at an angle, they grab down, and then you come up. You see Okamoto Seigo doing that. You know the, right. uh, the Kodokai really specializes this aiki age mm -hmm. or aiki sage. These kind of movements, they're getting inside a person's space. Now, how are you able to do that? In, in theory, at least, you've trained yourself in such a way that when you move, you move your body as an integrated unit. And if the other person isn't an integrated unit and you apply that to a sort of a weak spot, an opening, um, your 180, 200, whatever weight you have is all applied through that single point to a point that's not unified. And so that, that creates the open. So it's, you create a kind of kazushi through contact. Mm. That would be uh, one way to think of Aiki. Okay, so Takeda Sokaku, and these things are relevant to Aikido because elements of this is what uh, Takeda would have taught his students, including Ueshiba. Um, he's alleged to have studied Jikishin Kageryu. Okay. Now, what's interesting is Sword schools at the end of the 19th century and 20th century uh, were doing a primitive version of kendo. Most of what they did was shinai fighting. In fact, when Sakakibara Kenshi, who was the great leader of um, Jikishin Kagiri, when he died, his successor had to go to some other senior students to learn all the kata because Sakakibara's dojo was primarily doing gekiken, which means aggressive sword, which is basically early kendo. Mm -hmm. They were doing shinai fight with armor. Okay. Okay. So, so the kata, so it's probable that what Takeda largely did at Jikishin Kageryu was not the Jikishin Kageryu training. And they do incredible breath training. Uh, they have these kata where there's four kiai based on the four seasons with very heavy boken. Uh, coupled with breathing. They have this tandem with monstrous boken. They look like uh, uh, roof beams. Mm. And you have to, you know, it's almost carries you backward when you, you know, you try to do a cut. And so you have to keep your body unified. Um, I doubt very much that Takeda did much of that. Mm. Um, he would have been a youth. Young people were doing mostly this gekiken. Most of the early stories about Takeda, he's touring around with a shinai, challenging one school after another. Um, Kenjutsu was getting homogenized uh, at the um, probably the mid 1800s onward. Daimyo were basically, uh, I think it was the Annaka uh, feudal domain. The instructor went to Edo, uh, Tokyo. There were 50 Ryuha. And he said, I'm coming back in six months. I expect there to be one school when I come back. It's interesting, the word kodyu that many, many people are so admiring of, kodyu was actually kind of a term of insult. Mm. 
back really? 200 years ago because it meant broad you spar okay <laughs> in other words all you guys do is kata mm. right you have you've never tested yourself now the code you people say kind yeah, a familiar but, concept to our modern times huh it, it's never changed never changed <laughs> and the code you guys are saying we're doing pattern drills and you have deviated so far from combat principles with your overly long split bamboo armored body cells what you're learning isn't relevant to fighting right back and forth it goes right our techniques are too deadly for the ring i love it <laughs> right times change but they don't really change that much not at all not at all and you know if nothing else the one thing that was two things that were apparent in the Meiji Revolution was um, the conspirators unified through sparring because they were swordsmen from different areas, more like different countries. Their dialects were so different, it was hard to understand each other. Hmm. The different kata, how did they train together? The fact that they could put on armor, agree to some rules, and spar together meant that they could know each other in a way that they couldn't if they're just sitting around talking kata. Absolutely true. And I've experienced mm -hmm. the same thing myself. Uh, yeah. It happens in those regional differences. You find out de deficiencies you didn't know you had. And you that find too, yeah. mm -hmm. you, you also find uh, valuable things that you haven't trained yet. And you learn that way. So it's beneficial yeah. process. Yeah. And, you know, one of the most fascinating stories that illustrates this um, and in detail, it's in my uh, book, Old School. So there, there was a, um, a very famous source called, called Maniwa Nenyu that's been passed down from the Higuchi family. Um, I think it's 24 generations. And a guy showed up. It's a long story, so I'm going to make it real short. A guy showed up named Homma Sengoro, really strong guy. And he, had, he challenged Higuchi Saratsuga, I think is his name. And they had a fight, Naginata against the Long Shinai, which was a draw. Mm, okay. But um, uh, Homa said, I was on the defensive the whole time. I'm going to show up at New Year's and I'm going to be your student. Mm. So he walks and takes a boat and all that to Higuchi's hometown. He's like a foreigner coming in the dojo. At, at that time, somebody from 50 miles away showing up your dojo was like me going to Japan and showing up at a dojo. Mm. Who the hell is this guy? So they didn't just say, oh, yeah, we heard about you. He had to spar with a bunch of people. Mm. And basically, it was about a 50-50 draw. When he came to grips, because he, he had an Arakiri Menkyo, um, when he came to grips, he would win through a combination of grappling and weaponry. If the Maniwa people could keep him at a distance, they would cut him. So he joined, but very quickly became the strongest person in Maniwanenyu. And he would accompany Higuchi wherever he'd go. Um, he obviously had some kind of special skill, because one of the things that he used to do when Higuchi would bring him is he would get pinned down, face down on the ground by four people of the daimyo's retainers, and he would break free and get up. Mm. Um, and then he'd say, uh, and, and you say, oh, they're dive bunnies. They're not going to be dive bunnies for some foreigner, right? right? In front of their own daimyo, mm -hmm. right? So he was either and both titanically strong and very well trained in a coordinated way. So the Maniwa people 
dealt with him because they're a family business. They're not going to make him their headmaster. What they did is they gave him what they call an A-N menkyo, an eternal menkyo. But it basically means your menkyo is eternally elsewhere. <laughs> okay. So, and that was cool. That was a way to keep him, you know, close, but not, you know, you're not going to take over the family business. But not and, integrated. Right. And you're not a subsidiary either. Mm. Okay. Right? Ueshiba did the same thing with Hirai Minoru of Korindo in the 1940s, who was an expert already. And instead of saying, you're my Aikido student, it's like, you're my associate. And Hirai was the office manager for a while. Uh, get that down the, down the road. Um, so at any rate, um, Homa had his own dojo. The Maniwa people were pretty conservative. They maintained their kata. They had a limited kind of sparring, but they were the same generation after generation. Homa's sons started going to Tokyo and studying different forms of itodyo, which were the cool schools of the day. They were doing sparring. They're doing a lot of stuff with shinai. And so they were maintaining the old forms, but they're also bringing anything new they could bring back. Okay. And then I can't remember the date, but there was a rebellion, a farmer's rebellion I, this is, yeah, it's still the was early Meiji. But anyway, the, these farmers were feeling oppressed. They hired two Ronin, uh, and they basically drove the Imperial Guard out of this area. And the Imperial Guard- Two of trained, them. Yeah. Huh. And they, they're trained in Yagyu and some other things. And the guy who was the head of the Imperial Guard happened to have um, feudal domains, possessions, where Homa Nenyu was located. He calls the Homa guys to come and bail them out. Mm. And so the guys who were doing both classic and sparring ended up fighting this farmer's rebellion. And one of the Homa's top students engaged the, the deadly Ronin one-on-one -on -one and killed him and, mm. you know, basically won the day. Mm. So it sort of is a, a, a great example of a combination of concentrated pattern drill sparring and sparring is going to make the best fighter. Sure. Okay. I don't know how I even got over there. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there was this whole trend toward Shinai practice in sword. Okay. That developed into kendo as it became more and more codified. So one set of rules everywhere. Takeda Sokaku was definitely training that, practicing that, enacting that. Mm. Um, he also trained some period of time of hozoin yu spirit. Okay. And these things can be, you can still, they still are extant. So you can see what the kata at least look like. Hozoin yu uses a long spear. They have a spear with a crossbar, which they use for trapping. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever described Takeda using a spear with a crossbar. Mm. So whatever level of Hozonu he learned, either he only learned the beginning or he said, okay, I'm going to take what I can use and I'm going to use the suyari when I spar with people. Um, so uh, uh, Takeda Tokimune remembers his father using a spear with Ueshiba using a, a, a wooden bayonet rifle mm. and his father defeating Ueshiba all over the place with the spear. Okay. So, so Takeda did Hozonu um, and I, th I think that would be the main things that he did. 
So what did he come up with? He came up with something he called Daitodio. And he taught different Daitodio in different areas, right? To different people. Um, the best uh, of the grappling, wrist twisting, joint locking Daitodio is the Shikoku Daitodio, which is sort of associated with the Takumakai in Osaka, but the Shikoku guys are wonderful. Guillaume Erard has taken a bunch of films of, of uh, the old teacher mm. who had trained at Takamakai. He then went up to um, uh, Hokkaido and studied with Tokumuni as well. Okay, so there's, if, if I enumerate all this stuff, Takeda Sokaku studied sumo with his father, but then every young Japanese boy did, but his father was an expert at sumo. Okay, so he's got body-to-body -body grappling. He studied some sort of jujitsu, which is more arm-locky kind of grappling. Mm -hmm. He studied Onahaitoryu, and there probably is where he got the principles of what we call Aiki, which he turned on his head. Whereas the, the Daitoryu people are saying, I'm sorry, the Onahaitoryu people are saying, don't let yourself get in Aiki. And Takeda is saying, I'm going to put you in a state of Aiki with me through the use of my body, mm. through the use of my trained body. I'm going to get you in a position that when you take hold of me at that instant, there will be Kazushi applied to you. And that would make sense if it's strategically bad practice to be drawn into Aiki. On the other side of it, you'd say, I want to apply that. I want to be the one that applies that. Right, right. Logical. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And, and so, um, uh, at the moment of contact, ideally, I'm going to be at a position of disadvantage. Okay, um, I'll be destabilized. Okay, so then we go to Ueshiba. So, you know, the party line has, you know, said Ueshiba studied in detail a number of different martial arts and things like that. But let's let's break down what he actually studied. Um, when he was a young man, uh, probably 17 or 18, he went to Tokyo to make his fortune. It's some kind of clerk or something like that. Mm. The thing people have to understand is, although there's sort of vague claims that Ueshiba came from a, a, a warrior caste, bushy lineage, he didn't. Um, in fact, his nephew described that when Ueshiba later presented himself to the family dressed up in Haori and Hakama, saying, I'm going to go to Tokyo and be a martial arts instructor, everybody started laughing because the idea of a farmer being a martial arts instructor was funny to everybody. Mm -hmm. So, but nonetheless, he started studying with a guy named Tozawa Takisaburo. Mm -hmm. And this is how things get confused. Ueshiba Kishomaru, when he wrote uh, um, his father's diary, said he studied with Tobadi Takisaburo, who was a very famous guy who did Kitoryu Jujutsu. But Ueshiba didn't. He studied maybe two, three, four months with Tozawa Takisaburo, who was a teacher of Tenjin Shinyoku. So the first martial art that Ueshiba did was several months of Tenjin Shinyoku. Now, Tenjin Shinyoku is, number one, one of the two main roots of Judo. It's got hip throws. It's got uh, a lot of joint locks. The question is, in those two, three, four months, what would Ueshiba have learned? Right. 
So judo, I'm not talking about how deeply. I mean, what would he have been taught? If he were taught kata, he would have been taught some, um, and, and you, one can look up on the web, Tenjin Shinyoryu. You're going to see kata where, for example, a person is mostly in idori to begin with, uh, on, on your knees, striking at the head, and then you'll be put like in a waki gatame. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know the order of their techniques, if they start with weapon against unarmed or they have unarmed against unarmed, but they're um, rather stilted um, forms which end up with a joint lock. Some of them end up with a strangle. Okay. Okay. What people don't realize, though, is the bonds and bounds between Tenjin Shinyodu and Judo were pretty permeable at that time. It wasn't a rigid separation. Mm. And so Tenjin Shinyodu guys were teaching with Kano in the early days. They were doing Shiai as well. There was a lot more back and forth between the Jujutsu schools and Kano. What happened, though, is Young people, when they joined the school, found the Shi'ai a lot more interesting, and bit by bit, they started ignoring the Kata. And a lot of the another modern people, parallel. Yes, yeah. Gracie Jujitsu. People aren't interested in the Gracie self-defense, mm -hmm. right? So similarly, a, a lot of the code you died. They tried to survive by participating with Judo in the Shi'ai model, where everybody have a standardized Shi'ai model. People were doing Shi'ai back in the 19th century, but if I go to your dojo and you're, let's say, your Kidakidu, and I say, I challenge the dojo, I say, sure, come on in. Well, I'm going to be, I'll walk the floor to see where the loose planks are and where the nails are sticking up, because you're not going to tell me. Right. right? And you're also, we're not going to, you're not going to tell me exactly what the rules are. You can say, come, and I'll take like one of the juniors. I'm going to find out what the rules are as I fight, right. as they go from one person to another. Um, usually they didn't do a tenant, but it might be the special of the schools. We do leg locks, so you're going to experience a leg lock. If you weren't prepared for them, now you're going to, you know, right. uh, some schools focus on throws, some people focus on tackles, whatever. Mm -hmm. So the rules were inchoate from one place to another. Kano standardized the rules, so you say, oh, you know, we can get stronger, we'll play those rules, but the young people then aren't so interested in the kata, and, you know, in 1900, if you went to a jiu-jitsu school, a Tenjin Jinyoji school, you would be doing some sparring, you would be doing kata. Today, most of the jiu-jitsu schools only do the kata, and the sparring is left to judo. There are exceptions to that, or some schools will both be a classical jiu-jitsu and a judo school. Okay? So there, there are different ways that's handled. But my guess is that Ueshiba learned a couple months worth of rather stilted kata. And maybe it'd be, come on, young man, try me out. And might've been a little sparring going on, you know, or, you know, with the seniors, but it was very limited. Sure. Okay, so then Ueshiba um, joins the army. Contrary to uh, hagiography, he did not see combat. He was a quartermaster, but he was real, he was athletic and he was real good with juken which is Juken is the Japanese form of bayonet fighting. And you train with a modified sort of kendo looking armor with uh, the lead shoulder is well padded in armor. Okay? okay. And you've got a kendo mask. The mokuju, wooden, uh, ju in this case is bayonet. So wooden bayonet. But it's really a rifle replica with a long bayonet theoretically on the end of it. 
It's sure. just going to yeah, be I've seen pictures of those. It's like a yeah. carved piece of wood with a, a ball on the end of it. Yeah, yeah. And you can see pictures of Ueshiba uh, practicing. Classical uh, Jukendo guys now say, oh, he's wrong here, he's wrong there. Okay. Right. Um, at any rate, he was considered, so the stories go, pretty expert with the bayonet. Mm -hmm. um, and he served, he was stationed on the continent for some period of time, but he's also stationed in Japan. And while he was in Japan, he started going to a town called Sakai, and he started studying Yagyu Shinganyu. Okay. Mm -hmm. And people hear Yagyu and immediately think of Yagyu Shinkageyu, which is the famous elegant sword school. Yagyu Shinganyu, there's several branches of this. The branch that he studied um, is very brawny. Uh, if anybody's curious about that, if you look up on YouTube, just type Shinganyu and also type in Arakido, A-R-A-K-I-D-O. And you're going to see the kind of grappling that Ueshiba learned. So it was, was a grappling-based school as opposed or hand-to-hand -hand versus weapon? They have weapons, but the preliminary level is grappling. Hmm. And the thing I can definitely attest, because I, I loved Yagi Shinganyu. Um, there was a teacher there that um, uh, had I stayed in Japan, I would have definitely asked to study with. His name was Fujisada. He wasn't the main teacher, Muto. Uh, Fujisada was a judo man, uh, six don in judo, and he also, he, his calves were about this big. I mean, just, ah, what a brawny, wonderful guy. And I loved his sword, which is, there is nothing of Yagi Shinganyu's sword in anything Awashiba did nothing in their staff okay so i think the likelihood is since we see no elements of that and you do see one element of yagi shinganyu taijutsu in ueshiba's art which is ueshiba's koshinage where you're perpendicular to the body right uh john driscoll uh in particular tried to do a complete survey of Daitoju technique versus Aikido technique. And he only found that the Aikido classic Koshinaga is the only technique he couldn't find in Daitoju factions, but you definitely find in um, uh, Yagyu Shinganyu. Okay. So- I was curious with that hip throw being that Judo is probably the premier hip throwing art of the, of the mm -hmm. modern arts, that they don't have that one in there. I was, thought that was a curiosity. Well, the, the, the thing is that judo is based on an idea that you always want to have at least three points of contact. Mm. So if I'm going to do a, a judo ogoshi, I've got this arm, I got this hand around the hip, and my hips are on your thigh. That's three points of contact. Mm -hmm. The Aikido Koshinage is really closer to two points of contact. That's true. Right? You're grabbing the wrist, um, and you sort of bump the hip under, and there's more distance between you. It's, um, I think of it more as a trip with the hip. You get the person, in theory, at least overextended, and you bump their hip just when that position. So it's, it's much more dependent on perfect timing. Mm -hmm. right? It definitely is, especially if you don't want to try to muscle somebody up onto your hips and, and roll them over. It's right. There's a lot of dynamics going on there. Yeah, yeah. So I always thought that the technique should not be called koshinage, it should be called koshikake. Kake means to apply a, a trip, right? So it's just okay. you're chipping the, the, them as they go over. Um, 
so Ueshiba trained two, in theory, two or three times a week for three, four years and not every week because he's still in military service. Mm -hmm. So again, uh, he was given the, the first ranking, Mokoroku, the first ranking in uh, Yagyu Shinganyu. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't signed. And a lot of people made a big deal out of it, thinking that's suspicious. But um, in a lot of schools, you had to pay for your minkyo. Mm. And if Weishu didn't happen to have money, and sometimes if the teacher had to, I have this dilemma, I can't write minkyo for my own students. And so we have to pay somebody to do that. And if I were to pay somebody for each minkyo I gave students, I'd be broke, right? right. So I say to the students, I'm going to rank you regardless, but if you want this actual certificate, you have to pay the scribe for that. Right. And depending on how it's mounted, this can be a very expensive thing. So I think it's more likely that Ueshiba, um, either he didn't have the money at the time, or he left the army and he moved back to his family's home. Parents might have said, time to come home. And he hadn't got it signed. He'd received it, but he hadn't got, the, let's say he got it from a scribe mm -hmm. and he hadn't brought it back to the teacher for the hunko. And he just, for one, one reason or another, didn't get back to Sakai City for um, this teacher to um, certify it. Sure. But I don't think there was anything nefarious about that. So what do we got so far? We got a way she was dead. I mean, how much do you think? I would suggest, again, anybody's curious, go onto YouTube, look up Tenjin Shinyo Yukata, Imagine you trained, having never done martial arts before in your life, maybe done a little sumo, trained two or three months, how much would you learn? Okay. Right. Then, then go to Yagyu Shinganyu, and you've got now a guy who was in the military, um, and now he's going two or three times a week to this brawny grappling school, so he's learning something about the use of the body, no doubt. Okay. So... Then the next thing is Ueshiba goes back home. He's been discharged from the army. He doesn't have a job and he had a nervous breakdown. And it's unclear to me how many years they are. Of course, everything becomes legend. So he's described as, um, you know, going through the hills, fighting with the Tengu or, you know, uh, studying Joe or whatever. But basically he had a, he had a kind of a collapse. Mm. And it's not uncommon in, you know, in young people facing adulthood, right? It's like, oh, what am I going to do with my life? It's, uh, you know, particularly I'm out of the army. I'm at a loss. He did not suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, which again, if you start mythologizing and saying he saw combat and all this stuff, you could maybe make a case for, but he didn't see combat. I'd heard that he, he was part of a group that was captured and was looking at being executed. Is that true? That happened far later. That was, well, it was later. Okay. Part. Yeah. Yeah, that was in 1924. Mm. Um, so anyway, he's home and sort of having a breakdown. And his father, his father must have been a pretty bright guy. Because what he did is he contacted the Kodokan and hired a judo teacher to come to wherever the heck they were to set up a little judo dojo so his son could train judo. Mm. And so Takagi Kyoichi, Eventually, ninth dan in judo, great judoka, taught Ueshiba three months of judo. There was a dojo, Ueshiba, um, his nephew, Inoue, who was just a little kid, um, uh, 
was part of that and some other local people. But the thing is when people make a big deal, oh, Takagi was a ninth Don. At the time, he was a 17 year old Shodan. Mm. So, you know, he was just, he was just a pretty raw kid himself teaching some older people and all that. Um, and so Ueshiba had a little bit of judo. That's it. Okay. So that was 1911, just a few months. But at this time, so what do we got? We got a guy who's pretty physically powerful, has a little, dipped and dabbled in this or that martial art, goes to Hokkaido, homesteading, all the rest of that, meets Takeda Sokak in 1915, and then studied Daitoryu off and on for 20 plus years. For a while, the Ueshiba family is saying he studied 10 days. And Stanley Prannon debunked all of that. Takeda did teach 10-day seminars. Very modern. I mean, it's, it's amazing how modern Takeda Sokaku was. It was like you had a daily fee. You signed, he had everybody sign a book so nobody could later. Have you ever seen these seminars? Where, Sensei, could I have a picture? And somebody... Right a picture and then later in their own website uh two great teachers collaborating all right right yep. <laughs> and there you are with so-and-so um so uh, takeda sokaka had everybody sign his what's called emeroku which is a a, a, a notebook of names mm. and basically was like if, if if i see you later teaching my stuff your name is down here on two, 1902, you trained with me, mm. right? So it was, a, it was a sort of intellectual property collect, okay. Uh, protection. Okay. So the question is, um, and this is a hard question to answer, what did Ueshiba learn in total from Takeda? Mm. So the first thing is the bulk of his learning we can see in the Noma Dojo photographs and in the form of Daitoryu practiced by the Takumakai. Mm. That's in Osaka. And the reason I assert this is um, when Ueshiba was supplanted by his own teacher, Takeda Sokaku, he said, of course, he put down a student, Ueshiba wasn't very good, but he taught you the basics, so I'll go on from there. Mm -hmm. So the, um, the Takamakai has a set of uh, notebooks, which actually photographs that they, after class, they would photograph what they learned. So they had a record of it. Okay. And the first six books are Ueshiba mm -hmm. stuff. The, I think it's three more books or five more books. I can't remember which. Those books are what Takeda Sokaku taught. Although part of it, one of those books is women's self-defense and one is police stuff. So that was stuff that the teacher, Hisa Takuma, that he added. Hmm. So, but if you compare the Noma Dojo and you, again, you look at what the Takumakai are doing, it's a pretty tough, brawny jujitsu style. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the Takumakai and then you look, for example, at the Kodokai, if you weren't told they're the same Daitoryu, you'd never think it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, because the there's there's the the, the the Kodokai and its offshoot, the Ropokai, 
is so ethereal looking. They, they're studying this thing of Ike on touch to such a rarefied degree, it certainly looks unbelievable mm. to see it on film. Okay. Uh, I mean, it looks like the most dive bunny stuff. And since I've never felt it, I can't attest one way or the other, to sure. be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But it's, it, it looks unbelievable mm-hmm. uh, that when a, person's, when a person's grabbed, they just collapse. Um, I coined the phrase Ike accommodation syndrome. Mm. And the way I think it works is the one thing they said about Oweshiba was, for example, is he was titanically strong and expert. Mm -hmm. And what people said generally is when he grabbed you, it hurt. Mm. Just, you know, imagine somebody who's got an iron mine number four hand grip level of grip strength, right? Only what, three or four people in the world have ever got the level four close, okay? Mm -hmm. That level of grip strength, they grab you. And as Terry Dobson said, it felt like somebody ran a a red hot wire through my arm. Mm. He said he screamed at one time, went away, she lost his temper and grabbed him. Um, The pain was so great. So you literally were flinching to get away. Mm. Well, remember, nobody's explicitly teaching. Okay, this is what happens. This is the effect or whatever. It's like watch and repeat. And so what are the students doing? Oh, this is the way I'm supposed to respond to my senior throwing. Mm -hmm. And so you get a culture of people grabbing, putting Kazushi on themselves to make the technique possible. Right. And, you know, there's this famous story about Ueshiba stomping in the dojo. That's not my Aikido. And people have tried to interpret this 75 different ways. Um, I think one of the easiest theories is he was observing people taking ukemi, mm. putting themselves in a position to make the throw possible. It wasn't done with Aiki, mm. ironically. Okay. Aikido, not done with Aiki. Okay, so Ueshiba did learn um, the more jujitsu side of Daitodium. Allegedly, he also learned the more subtle side uh, and probably he learned that when um, Takeda Sokaka in 1921 visited him for, I think it was a six month period in Ayabe at the Omotokyo headquarters. Mm. Okay. Um, Ueshiba is described as people would say, when I grabbed him, I felt like my power was sucked out of me. And people, if you've ever had an experience of putting hands on somebody like a really good judoka, and you can't quite feel their form, they're moving in such a way that you can't quite hold. This is, I think, what we're really talking about, not some mystical having your power sucked right. away. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't find their center kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Weishiba apparently had that skill. If he was as good as X or Y, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so he learned some principles of Ito sword, because he learned that hapo bunshin, that, uh, you know, multiple attack kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he sparred with Takeda with a spear. And maybe a spear against Juken, because after Takeda left, his Ueshiba Kishomaru describes his father practicing incessantly with a spear in the garden mm. and stabbing a tree so deeply that when they moved out, they had to leave the spearhead behind because it got broken off in the, in the tree. Oh, okay. Um, 
some people who were in the know asserted that Ueshiba was a marvelous spearman. But I don't know what any of that means. He was certainly strong. And he used to do that feat of strength where he would stab a bale of rice and heave it with the spear. I mean, that takes a tremendous amount of power, no doubt about it. it. But did they see him spar or fight with a spear? Or did they see those kind of feats and see how quick and adroit he was and say, oh, he's a good spearman? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he learned a little bit of the principles of spear. Mm -hmm. He did not learn on the Hayitoryu sword from Takeda. He might have learned some principles. And the proof of that is when you look at the film of Ueshiba in 1936 doing um, sword, uh, you know, in the Osaka film, mm-hmm. he's terrible. I'm sorry, you know. I've, he I've heard that before too. And I think it was uh, Erard that was talking about that with some other, I could be mistaken on that. Uh, there was, discussion yeah. from some of the high-level Kenjitsu folks and they're like oh it doesn't look good no no um because he's got a kendo footwork and i think already his nakakura kyoshi was in the dojo uh um uh he was a famous kendo guy who married ueshiba's daughter for a few years um but when ueshiba cuts he's on the balls of his feet and when he cuts he arches his back and his chin comes up like this so he's sorry let's see if i can push this away from me a little bit um he pushes the sword out mm-hmm. arches his back and his chin comes up biomechanically that's terrible mm-hmm. okay um he was quick on his feet but that's terrible so and it's not the way they cut an ito mm. okay so that's 1936 okay so now there's two other components that people talk about with Ueshiba. So the first is among his students was, um, I think he ended up an admiral or a commander. His name was uh, Gejo Kisaburo. Gejo Kisaburo was a Yagyu Shinkageyu swordsman. He was a Menkyo. I believe he was associated with Takeda before he was associated with Ueshiba. And that, to me, is interesting because people did that. There were several others uh, uh, who started with Ueshiba, uh, started with Takeda, moved to Ueshiba. So they either did not consider him inferior or they considered it a more congenial environment to be around. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when a few moments ago I had mentioned that Ueshiba uh, hosted Takeda at Ayabe at the Amotokyo headquarters and probably learned some Hozoinyu spear. Well, um, there Takeda gave Ueshiba um, the, uh, uh, oh shoot, I forgot. Anyway, gave him the certification to teach. I'm having one of those days I don't remember certain words. So quite all right. Yeah. And then he also gave him a, a scroll, which is a Yagyu Shinkageyu scroll, which is a, called the Shindikyo, which means shoe offering bridge. I don't know why, but that's what it's called. Hmm. And this is a portion of Yagyu Munenori, a founder of Yagyu Shinkageyu's famous book, the Heiho Kadensha. Hmm. But it's weird. The scroll that Ueshiba got does not have 
all five of the basic principles that are in the original. It only has three. Um, he, it's use your fist as a shield, support your body with the front leg, extend your rear leg. These are three of the five principles. Um, but they, they're, they're two of them uh, that are, are, are omitted. One is standing in hitoemi, which is like an exaggerated hanmi, and lower your shoulder to your opponent's fist, right? This way. Okay, those were omitted. Um, it also records the first two kata of Yagishin Kagiyu, which I'll, I'll come back to in just one second. Um, the scroll is weird because it has, on the lineage, it has, I think, the first two founders of Shinkagadu, and then it has 12 generation teachers of sword in Aizu. It's sort of all it says, not the names, just 12 generations of teachers of sword in Aizu, and then it has Takeda Sokaku. There's no record of Shinkagadu being taught in Aizu. Hmm. What's weird is some people say, well, wait, there was an Aizu Shinkagadu. Yes, but that was actually an Itoju school that for some reason called themselves Shinkagadu. Okay. There's no record of Yagyu Shinkagedu or other close offshoots being taught in Aizu. And it's just odd to have a lineage where it says 12 unnamed teachers. Right. right? So the next thing is um, this particular document. I'm sorry, this gets kind of arcane, but it's trying to figure this stuff out. There were two fa main factions of Yagyu Shinkagedu, the Owadi faction and the Edo faction. The Edo faction was almost extinct, was very obscure. And all the extant teachers anybody knew about were part of the Owadi faction. Hmm. So where would Takeda have gotten this? Um, no one knows. Hmm. Uh, he may have had a Yagyu teacher, a student, and just said, well, since I'm teaching him, I know what he knows. That would be the kind of thing some people would say. Hmm. So I'm qualified to write this menko. If you're my student, mm -hmm. you're my student at everything. I've often felt it had kind of a symbolic meaning that uh, he wanted to give Ueshiba something special. And maybe it was associated, he did Jikishin Kagebu. And so he was, you know, but that's just pure speculation on my part. Sure. At any rate, the reason it's clear that he was, Ueshiba wasn't taught Yagishin Kagebu is when Takeda visited Ueshiba in Tokyo in the 1920s, there was a Fukuro Shinai in the dojo. Uh, for those not familiar, Fukuro Shinai is a split piece, piece of split bamboo that is um, sheathed in leather. In the Yagyu style, it's red leather, red lacquered leather. And that's sort of the archetype of their school. When Takeda saw it, alleged, according to Tomiki, he just threw a fit. Hmm. As in, what the fuck is this doing in my Daito Ryu dojo? This doesn't belong here. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You gave him the Shinkageryu Menkyo. But obviously, whatever it meant to Takeda, it didn't mean Yagyu Shinkageryu with the Fukuro Shinai, which is what they do all their practice, or most of their practice with. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, but um, the Yagyu Shinkageryu Kata are kind of um, odd to some people because they're actually chains of subkata. And I, I could look at my notes and um, one has like seven sub kata chained together. And you could break each of those out mm -hmm. and have a, 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 a like 
a, a two or three technique form, but they're chained in two long sequences. I think seven or nine of these sub, sub things. And Ueshiba later was teaching three of those subforms. Mm. Okay, so let's see. I, um, he taught forms that Higatsuchi studied. I think that Shirata studied at a different time period called Shochikubai. And that's pine, Shochiku is take or bamboo, and bai is plum. It's you know, one of these lovely symbolic things. Mm-hmm. And the, each of those forms were associated with the, the, um, the circle, the square, and the triangle, which Uishi was very enamored with. And so the three kumitachi forms of Shochikubai were modifications of the sho is a form called kaboku, which is the fourth subkata from the metakata kuganotachi. Chiku is zante zetetsu, is the second subkata from the sangaku en notachi. Don't remember this, you won't. And bai is ozume, the seventh subkata from kuta notachi. So he took three of the subkata and said, these are the epitome of which I'm trying to teach. And he taught those to Tomiki, not that he ever got very good with sword, to Shirata, who was pretty competent with a sword, and at a later period in a later place, taught them to Hikitsuchi. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what I'm kind of piecing together here, both with Takeda and with Ueshiba, is they assembled from many different sources, essentially what they wanted to teach, rejecting some things, you know, compiling them. Um, and something that, that uh, it seems like is it really that what we now call today Aikido should probably be called Ueshibaru Aikijujitsu or Ueshibaru because that is sort of what his family lineage has taken ownership of where they've omitted some things, you know, they've correct, uh, collected their curriculum the way that they would want to have it. But it's certainly not all-encompassing of what was Aiki Jiu-Jitsu or, or even Aikido at the time in the 40s and 50s. Um, and it, there was, uh, as I understand it, the term Aikido was not something that Ueshiba or the Ueshiba family invented themselves. It was around, I think right around the war or slightly post-war, there was an attempt to describe the Japanese arts that were not Aikido, that were not uh, sumo and they kind of had this umbrella term that they called aikido and i can't remember i I remember reading about this but i don't recall the details of who was the brainchild behind how about we just put a umbrella term for everything that's not well defined already um so let me put that right over here i'll get to that perfect okay yeah yeah Okay. okay so one other thing happened which was um uh the kodokan for various reasons, had a traditional martial art research academy. Mm. And just one thing was an attempt to preserve old Kodyu that would be lost. Another, Kano was trying to derive from some of these older arts, things that were useful for judo. He wanted to have an organized attempt. He wanted to make a mixed martial art, but he couldn't see how to do that without it conflicting with his social aims. Uh, he didn't want to create a brutal art. Um, and punching people in the face is frankly brutal. But he was, he was enamored with stick. 
and staff work. And so Shindo Musoryu Jo was taught in the Kodokan, Katori Shintoryu was taught, and three prominent Aikidoka, Muchizuki, Sugino, and uh, uh, Murashige, all studied various lengths of times of Yagyushin Kagedu through the Kodokan Research Academy teachers. Several teachers of Kashima Shintoryu also taught there. Okay, so first distinction, there's a Kashima Shinyu that's separate. Okay, this is Kashima Shintoryu. Kashima Shintoryu can be seen on YouTube, but uh, the last fully educated headmaster died without teaching his son the whole curriculum. His son, um, I may still be alive or may be dead right now, but um, with the help of the seniors of the school tried to put it all together, but many things were lost. But at any rate, two Shihan from the Kodokan Research Institute would be traveling back to Ibaraki. I believe that's where the Kashima Shrine was, where they were. They would drop by Ueshiba's dojo. They taught Ueshiba Kishomaru and uh, starts with an A, but I forgot his name. One of the senior, one of the senior members of the school at the time. And Ueshiba was watching. His signature is there in the books, but it was considered unseemly for a father and son to be studying as equal students. At least they considered so. So he watched, and it was about a two-year process. I don't think that, with no disrespect, I don't think the Kishimara sensei learned very much because there's no evidence of Kashima Shintoryu in his sword movement. But Ueshiba took some of the basic kata, and he started teaching his version of those kata up at Iwama. And the basis of some of those kata are the basis of Iwama sword kumitachi. Okay. I'd also heard that, that Saito put together a lot of the, the katas that, that Iwama has as the core part of the curriculum. Did he? Particularly with the Joe. Okay. The way she would say, hey, bap, 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 bap. And Saito would remember that, he'd codify that, and he'd make a pattern drill out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'd heard is that. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't realize or what was explained to me was not Joe specific, but that, that Morhai did not teach any, he just used the stick and, and Saito was trying to sort it out and figure out a way to remember everything that he saw. And that's why he codified in right, those, right. those things. Right. Okay. So the last thing about the Kashima Shinto you sort of remember is while Ueshiba was teaching people in Iwama area, a sword that was somewhat derived from Kashima Shintoryu movement, Aikified in Ueshiba's way. He was simultaneously or in parallel teaching the Sho Chikubai, the pattern drills derived from Yagyu Shinkageryu to different people. Hmm. And it may be he thought different people needed different emphasis or I can put the same principles in different forms and that way it's less boring, mm -hmm. you know, because you don't have to do the same thing all the time. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But so he was... Um, and Sugino sensei said that Ueshiba used to look at different martial arts and say, oh, but in Aiki, we do it this way. So in other words, his main art was Daitoryu. He would look at others and say, oh, I could use this, this, and this, and that'll contribute to my Aiki. Mm. Okay. Okay. Last point. Let's take the Joe real quick. Um, Ueshiba started with spear, bayonet, then he did spear. Allegedly, he was doing bow. He was doing a longer staff for a while. After the war in particular, started doing more with the Joe. 
Now, there are three aspects to staff. The one are the forms where you grab on and are thrown. Um, uh, Ueshiba stated to Kondo, I learned these from Takeda Sensei. So the grab the stick and be thrown is a der derivative of Daitodium. Okay. Um, number two are the Kumitachi. And these are Saito, but other teachers as well, having cross sticks with the Ueshiba, remembering that pattern drill and codifying it. The third thing is the solo form. And with some variations, diff different teachers in different locales do the solo forms differently with a different number of counts, but it's all pretty much the same. And there's a faint possibility that Ueshiba got his inspiration from this, from hanging out with people of a school called Kukishinyu, uh, which gets real mucked up because a lot there's a whole um, Bujinkan Kukishinyu, but the Orthodox Kukishinyu, now called Kukumashinyu, still exists in Japan. A really good school, got very interesting technique. And very atypically for Japanese martial arts, they have a solo form with the stick. And some of the movements are like harai movements, harai movements, like kind of spiritualized movements to sweep contaminants out of a dojo. Okay. So it's, I think it's possible that Ueshiba got some inspiration from Kukushinyu. But what I came really clear to me is two things. Sometimes Ueshiba's solo stick was called Kaguramai. That's a, a dance for the gods. It's a purification dance. And a couple of years ago, I was in Kamakura and I saw some uh, Shinto priests doing a ritual to Bishimonten, who's a deity of the sea. And they had a hoko, which is uh, uh, an archaic spear. They just had a spear replica. It was about the length of a joe with a, um, a little golden spear tip. Mm -hmm. And they were doing movements straight out of Ueshiba's joe. It was stunning. Mm -hmm. What I think Ueshiba did is he pretty much took Shinto ritual movements and re-martialized them. He put the virility back in these movements, whether they were there to begin with or not. But he took what was originally a dance for the gods and made it a warrior dance for the gods. And that's his staff form. Okay. Okay. All right. So then the, 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 that's, that's Ueshiba's uh, sort of weapon history and martial training history. Mm -hmm. To the question you asked about the name. Okay. The Ueshiba family was unfair to Takeda Sokaku. Um, the reverse could also be said to be true, that it could be, one can be unfair to the Ueshiba family. But the first thing is Ueshiba Morihei was teaching Daitodyu, which was originally called Daitodyu Jutsu. Takeda visited Ueshiba at Ayabe at the Amoto Kyo headquarters. Amoto was a religious cult sect with a, a, an incredibly fascinating cross-dressing, charismatic, con-man, god-man, Deguchi Onisaburo. Takeda and Deguchi hated each other. Mm. But Deguchi uh, apparently was the one to suggest, you should call this Aikijutsu. Mm. Now, it is not the first use of the term Aiki. Again, this is where this stuff can get, you know, Sure. misrepresented. Takeda was surely using the term Aiki, apply Aiki here, here's how you use Aiki. And Deguchi 
you know, you got to stake yourself out. You know, if you're going to commercialize yourself, if you need brand to be, it. Yep. yeah, it's a, it's the brand and probably Ueshiba had his two cents to add and Takeda and Ueshiba were like a, a fraught father and son relationship. Hmm. Yeah. I heard it was pretty tense. Yeah. But it wasn't only tense, you know, and that's the thing. Um, there was tension, but it's the same kind of tension with a father who wants the son to be following the family business, hmm. but I'm still, it's still my business. Right. Right. Um, so Daitoju started being called and written about as Daitoju Aiki Jujutsu. Um, within some factions of Daitoju, they talk about three levels of technique, Jujutsu, Aiki Jujutsu, Aiki no Jujutsu, um, which is going to take us off. That's a technical stuff that's going to take us off the track, so to speak. Sure, sure. Okay. So Ueshiba started doing and teaching Daito Ryu Aiki Jujutsu. He's teaching in Tokyo in the 1920s. Um, he's teaching counter judo techniques, among other things, openly, right? Which had its own ramifications. Now, he was associated with a lot of very prominent military people. And people don't understand how this happened exactly. There was a law in the constitution that military people could not participate in politics. Okay. What a lot of military people did is they joined Omotokyo, partly because I suppose they were religious, but also they weren't talking politics, they were talking religion. It gave them an opportunity to politic because they were under a religious organization. Okay. So there were a number of prominent generals and admirals who could hang out together, talk about politics, you know, and Omotokyo was involved in all that, but it was in part due to the constitution. This was an end run around the Japanese constitution. Okay. okay. Um, they liked Ueshiba. Uh, they did not like Takeda. Hmm. Takeda was this eccentric, autocratic, old fashioned guy. And so in the notes of the Admiral Takeshi, it's like, what are we going to do about the Takeda problem? Hmm. You, you know that old folk song, the cat came back the very next day, thought he was, you know, it's like how you try to drown the cat and he shows up at the doorstep the next day, you burn him, you electrocute him, he right. keeps showing up. That was like Takeda. He kept like the bad showing penny. Up. Yes, yes, yes. And so the generals and admirals around Ueshiba started calling themselves the Aoi Juku, the Aoi being blue. I don't know what the symbol really meant, but it was Aoi, the, the sort of blue group. Mm. And Ueshiba started handing out menkyo, which were daitoryu menkyo, which were labeled Aoi Ryu. Mm. So he's still a student of Takeda, but he's trying to separate himself. Sure. Okay. Um, at a certain point, the separation happened, and you know I could go on way too much about that. But they, there was a, a final split. Ueshiba started calling what he did Aiki Budo. Okay, and that I again believe, attempt to kind of rebrand. Yes, yes, okay. and and the other thing is there was a difference in emphasis. Daito Yu Jujutsu, in a sense, when you're in, when you, a, a technique is applied to you effectively in Daitoju, it's like you were packed in a space too small for your body to comfortably be. 
you're crumpled in that space. And so properly speaking, a lot of the techniques where people are truly locked up and not through some collusion is I'm locked up because I can't move to unlock my arm because one part of my body in a sense is neutralizing the other. So the dietary theory that some people talk about is you crumpled somebody to the ground on at your feet and then you stomp them. Real simple. Okay. What Ueshiba started doing, and you can see this in the earliest films, the earliest film of Ueshiba we have now just got released from the Omotokyo people. It's 1934. Mm. And there's about two minutes of uh, Ueshiba doing Daitoju. But what he's really doing is projecting throws. It's very linear. Mm -hmm. It's Aikido we know and love today. Sure. But he's projecting people out. So in a sense, I, Ueshiba's innovation was to emphasize get the person to a point of instability and then project them outward, not crumble them inward. Sure. So that was where he started to make a distinction. Mm -hmm. um, so he was calling it Aikibudo. So what happened as far as the name goes is um, there was an overarching umbrella organization called the Butokukai, which was established 1905 perhaps. And they had a kendo division, they had a judo division, some other divisions. And there was this question, what to do with schools that didn't fit within the, the, those divisions. Right. Okay. Now this is where, like everything else, it gets kind of murky. So Ueshiba hooked up with a younger guy. You know, his students were going off to war and all that. And a really fascinating man named Hirai Minoru uh, started to associate with Ueshiba. And Hirai had, he'd studied some forms of jujitsu and kenjutsu and allegedly in a kind of parallel evolution ended up with a school similar to what Ueshiba's techniques were. Uh, it, it's called Korindo, often referred to as Korindo Aikido. And it's interesting, again, YouTube, you can take a good look at some very interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. I honestly wonder what Hirai's stuff looked like before he met Ueshiba. Mm. If he started to, he had his own thing, but he started to aikido it. I don't know. But well, kind of like we were talking earlier, when you have regional influences, differences, mm -hmm. and you play together, <laughs> you usually influence one another. Yeah. Steal each other's and, good stuff and tune it. Yes. And Ueshiba was older, had more prestige. And Hirai managed to get along with him well enough that he was the office manager of the, uh, the Aikido Dojo as people began to leave. So okay. the Butokai was having some kind of meeting about this nomenclature. Hirai, as a representative of Ueshiba's organization, went down and agreed to start calling what they did Aikido. Now, the reason for the name change is to fit in with judo, kendo, jukendo, naginata do, things like that. Sure. Um, it's, we're all supposed to be doing the same thing. There was this real homogenation going on in Japan. Mm. Now, I'm partly responsible for, I think, the confusion about this because I wrote a couple of things about it. I thought that the Aikido division in the Butokukai was the umbrella category for all Kodyu Jiu-Jitsu. Mm. That's what Hirai-sensei seemed to say. Mm. But 
you know, I've looked through the Butokai records and there's no Aikido division where inside you're going to see so there's nothing like that. Mm. Um, I think it was just a brief little administrative thing that otherwise is unremarkable that Aikido and maybe Daitoju, it's hard to tell, mm-hmm. um, is now called, you know, what Ueshiba does and what some of the other people do will now be called Aikido. Mm, okay. wasn't important at all right it wasn't some major you know reestablishment because you will not find as i say you find a judo boo a judo section a kendo section you don't find an aikido section with a lot of different organizations listed mm-hmm. yeah it's just ueshiba's group was enrolled in the butokokai as should any martial arts organization during wartime be enrolled in the government-run organization okay so it really so, wasn't a fight over a brand or anything like that, uh, which it seems like as time has gone on and now we have, uh, you know, Shotokan, uh, uh, Aikikai, uh, the, uh, oh, now I'm blanking, uh, Shiota's Yoshinkan. These Yoshinkan are all Aikido, but they yeah. all kind of claim lineage to the, the focal point of Morahai. Uh, right, right. right. So, so basically... I would consider it a, a minor administrative thing. You're going to, you should call yourself Aikido. So the government will be pleased. And so they did. Uh, the war ends. And basically, um, uh, and by the way, uh, often Daitoryu people refer to themselves as Aikido. Mm, okay. Um, and it wasn't a big deal. It was, it's more convenient. Right. And as I understood it, uh, even the certificates that Morahai would sign even into the 60s were, la- were labeled as Daito Ru. Some apparently were. I don't know. You know That's some, what I'd heard, but I didn't know. Chris Lee dug up one certificate, which is a Daito Ryu certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the only one okay. that ever has been found like that. Sure. But certainly in the, but. It didn't seem like tell. the branding was a huge priority. Uh, no, and it never has been. You know, when I lived in Japan and I was kind of pompously, somebody say, you know, what do you do? And I said, oh, I do Arakiryu or I do Todabukaryu. What's that? Well, I might say Kenjutsu. And they look at me and go, oh, you mean Kendo? Right. People would correct me. You know, it's like it, nomenclature isn't regarded the same way. Your name is. Mm. You don't want your name twisted. Right. But nomenclature is not as important. Right. Right. Um, so... The war ends, Ueshiba is now doing, uh, to whatever he's doing, he's doing uh, Aikido. And should he have called it Ueshiba Ryu Daito Ryu? I don't think so, personally, Mm -hmm. because it's actually a mark of respect when you change something in a way that makes your own teacher less than happy, right? To give you an example, um, uh, I trained a fellow in Araki for a long time. He started teaching his own group. And I felt that what he was teaching was no longer representative of my Araki. He's good. It's very good. But it wasn't representative. And it bothered me that he would call it Araki. Because people would say, oh, that's what Ellis does. And I'd be like, no, it's not. Okay. So... We agreed, um, I gave him a one generation menkyo, which means you're certified in what I taught you, 
And then he calls what he does arakishinyu, using the character for Kokoro. Mm. It, now, I don't think about it. I don't worry about it. If somebody comes in, it's, it's, he's free of, right. you know, it's, 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 it's like you marry out of your family, you change your names. You know, and that brings up a dilemma, having met hundreds, if not thousands of fighters, only rarely can I think of less than like count on one hand, the number of students that take on exactly how their, their mentor fights or how they move or how they do their art. Mm -hmm. Almost 99.9%, the rest are going to learn their own art, even though they learn it from that mentor, or they've learned the basics and the fundamentals, and then they start making their art their own. And it starts mm -hmm. to look different, it starts to feel different. And when you try to put a template of one term that describes several generations of those students or a wide breadth of those students that do different things because that's what they're well suited for um where their bodies are or their personalities are different from their instructor like that's the dilemma of how do you explain that and i think your your description of of your student is kind of that same way right I mean, we find our own individual martial path but how to stay within the you know the quote-unquote template uh, mm -hmm. And then we get to, you know, the modern age. Well, that's not Aikido. That's not Aikido. What I do is Aikido. What you do isn't Aikido. And then it gets into the bicker festival that <laughs> uh, yeah. it's so common um, when it's really not of much point. Right, right, right. So, so you have, you know, it's clear that nobody's doing Ueshiba Morihei's Aikido mm -hmm. to a certain level, partly because he taught people differently and partly because um, no, Part of his Aikido was clearly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, a spiritual endeavor. Mm -hmm. And not spiritual in I love God and God is great. It's his focus was um, this kind of Neo Shinto idea that by gathering power into himself, he becomes a kind of avatar, he becomes a kind of deity. And that power balances the forces of the universe itself. And people can trivialize this, but it was deadly serious to him. Sure. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a fascinating idea. See, the Chinese had this idea of heaven, earth, and man. And the way the Chinese largely talked about it is man or humanity in microcosm incorporates the forces of heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. Right? The macrocosmic yin and yang, the microcosmic yin and yang right here. But what Ueshiba following Deguchi did is they made man a third ordinal force. So there's heaven and earth, which can be in division and through the force of humanity, properly trained, properly through ritual practice, heaven and earth are organized. Mm -hmm. So when Ueshiba was talking about harmony, he wasn't talking about, gee, Tristan, we're getting along great today. I'll eat like, yeah, I'm a good time or, or any of that. He was talking about balancing chaos in the universe, the, the, the participation of the, um, the properly acting human is to set the forces of the universe in order. Mm. As a corollary to that, peace may reign on earth and all that, but that's not the way the issue is framed. Sure. So when people sort of cut that out, they've cut out Ueshiba's Aikido. Mm. Simple as that. Yeah. Um, Ueshiba was enacting, in one sense, he would keep a lot of Daito-ryu stuff to himself and didn't teach his students that, 
perhaps on the steel, the technique, if you're paying attention, you're going to get it. And also by holding something in reserve, I'm always better than you. You know, the, the, the petty That's a very old school it. samurai attitude. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, was he being petty or was he basically saying, you know, if I spoon feed you this, you're not going to learn it anyway. You only learn this through struggle. So are you paying attention? Well, and I think during his lifetime, he was at the cusp of two eras where, you know, up until his midlife prior to that, a secret you knew that nobody knew you knew could be the difference of, between you living and dying. And yeah. you don't want to impart mm -hmm. that or, or share your secret for fear, you know, you will not have that, that ability that will surprise your opponent and take them. Yeah. Whereas in our modern age, we share our martial arts. It's not a, a, we don't look at it as a life or death thing. We look at it as a, from a practical term of, you know, it shouldn't matter if my opponent knows how to, how to block a particular technique. I need to know how to do it extraordinarily well, set it up properly so that it's not, I'm not counting on raw surprise mm -hmm. in order to make my art work. Um, and I think that's a, just a difference in age, you know, in eras. Yeah. And yet, you know, I still do traditional arts and there are things that, you know, I, I just actually gave somebody a Minko uh, my last trip to Europe. And I taught three guys some essential teachings I'd never taught them before. Mm. Um, and I have kept them myself and I would never teach publicly, mm. not because, oh, if you stab from this angle, something magic will happen. It's <laughs> not like that. Yeah. But it, it um, is a particular way of doing kiaijutsu, for example, some particular things that um, it's almost like it would cheapen them to talk about them publicly because the persons who figured this stuff out did stake their life on it. And it's kind of, it's sort of like, hey, excuse my language. This is how me and my wife fuck. Let me show <laughs> you, right? <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Somebody might look at, you know, say, wow, those two people look like they have a really nice relationship. They got a glow about them, right? Mm -hmm. There's something going on, but you wouldn't want to hear about it. Right. Right. Okay. And, you know, in a strange way, there's an intimacy in, 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 in fighting. There's an intimacy in studying this stuff that particularly if knowledge is particularly hard won, the only reason to tell outsiders of your group about that knowledge is to show off. Wow, isn't this cool what I know? Which is different from, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not debating against what you say, because most of the stuff in my, my whatever martial learning I have, I'm very open about. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I absolutely agree with you. But there are certain things in a traditional context I, I still subscribe to. I get that. Sure. Okay? And, and I only teach people who notice I'm doing it. If mm -hmm. somebody says, wow, you must be good. You beat me again as opposed to, I can see them trying to figure it out and trying things out. Mm -hmm. It's not a reward to teach them. It's a responsibility to teach them because they're that committed mm -hmm. to the learning, right? And ready. Mm -hmm. and, and ready, yes. The, the vision mm -hmm. thing is, is a big right. thing. You can't teach somebody if they don't have the vision to even see what you're proposing. Yeah. yeah. So. yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, I, I know we've been going for about 90 minutes here. So uh, was yeah. there anything you wanted to wrap up with? I, yeah. I think, you know, a big part of what I wanted to cover was the fact that most, a lot of people believe that it was Ueshiba and his line that, that that's all Aikido was. And I'm glad you went through and described mm -hmm. some of all these different influences of yeah. uh, not only Morahai, but, but Takeda and, and uh, that, you know, there were other contemporaries that came through the post-war era of, 
other Aikido uh, that had different names. And of course, the, the names are dizzying and I won't remember any of them, but uh, just to realize that it wasn't just a, a one horse show. Well, let me give you just one last bit because sure. sort of on the, on the, so we got post-war is where people started to split off. Mm. Okay. So the first major person to split off was Mochizuki. Um, and he may have split off even before the war. And the reason Mochizuki split off is he had his own vision. Mm. He admired and idolized Ueshi, but he's also doing Katori Shinto Ryu. He's also a judo expert. He was studying karate and he was trying to create a mixed martial art mm. and did Yosei Kan Budo, of which Aikido right. is a part. The difference is what he didn't do, like what we think of MMA today, where things are homogenized, mm -hmm. right? You, you, you mix in the grappling with the atemi, with the whatever, right? Um, he kept them to some degree separate, mm. right? So you had these sections of his curriculum, right? Sure. And then you might blend them in certain ways. But so he never lost the respect of the Ueshiba family. Mm. Um, part of the reason, I think, is because he changed the name. Ah, uh, okay. Right? Because then the Ueshiba family didn't say, wait, my, you know, Ueshiba Kishimoto say my, my senpai is better than me and is sliding me by, you know, he's always, I support the Ueshiba family. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Ueshiba was, after the war, he's kind of out of business. People are starving. Shioda, who was one of his leading students, um, got hired uh, to have organized strike breakers, uh, you know, against sort of left-wing unions and things like that. And he had a lot of financial backing and he started the Yosh Yoshinkan Dojo. Um, it was Yoshinkan Aikido. He never made a break from the Aikikai. He just had a kind of administrative break. And he managed, um, there was kind of backhanded slagging of his, him, but, you know, he would always be at the Ueshiba family functions and things like that. Yoshinkan Aikido standardized a method of training and it looks kind of rigid and programmed. And then you look at look up uh, Shioda's black belt seminars. Mm -hmm. And this is where he was trying to show the subtleties. And there's this whole argument, well, he studied Daitu somewhere else. I don't want to get into that real article about it. Anyway, sure. okay. So he, you had an administrative change where he wasn't saying, I'm still doing Aikido. I'm doing a kind of Aikido. And he was accepted as doing that. Mm -hmm. um, then you had Tomiki. Tomiki, and this one gets kind of iffy because so Tomiki was a, a Waseda University instructor. He wanted to teach Aikido. The assertion was if, the only way you can teach Aikido is in the sports department and sports has competition. You have no competition. And he was like, oh, what the heck? I got to do competition. And therefore it developed. That's uh, a face-saving way of describing what really happened. Mm -hmm. uh, Tomiki had two wonderful teachers, Kano, and Tomiki saw the value of competition and he consulted with Kano about, is there a way to integrate Aikido technique into judo, into the judo shiak? And so they were calling it arm's length judo. Mm, okay. um, he got considerable pushback from other judo shihan. Mm. Um, and so the only thing he was allowed to do was with some other people whose names got attached to it, but it was mostly Tomiki. Uh, the addition of the self-defense kata, the goshin jitsu kata in judo, which are aikibudo kata. And you can look up 
Tomiki Goshinjutsu Kata. It is rough, rugged mm. Aikidudo. Okay. okay. Um, he believed in competition. He believed in the value of competition because Tomiki felt the purpose of Budo is to protect the society which we live in, which is a modern society. People should not be doing some kind of hermetic, obsessive pursuit at the expense of supporting a family or an education. Mm -hmm. So you should do an activity that makes a fine young man or a fine young woman in your four years in the university in particular. And so what he found, though, is hand-to-hand -hand Aikido competition just didn't work. And so by adding the knife as an attacker, he was trying to set up a form that would force people to do Aikido techniques against this poking object. That makes sense. And Phil Relnick actually, among other things, a great judoka, was a Wasada student. And Tomiki brought a couple of his guys. He saw Relnick practicing judo and he thought, that was a big guy. And he asked Phil to take Ukemi and try techniques against his two students while he was developing his competition mm. stuff. Okay. So the Ueshiba family was really threatened by Tomiki doing competition because there was this phrase, there's no competition in Aikido and all that. Mm -hmm. And so Doshu Kishamaru explicitly said, if he called it Tomiki, do there'd be no problem. Okay. It was that he called it Aikido, and it's conflated with what we do, even though allegedly it's against the principles. Okay. Right? Then you have Tohei, who split off because he felt that his method is the method everybody should follow. Um, and it's like, so there's Tohei style of Aikido, right? Uh, but that it's, 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 Everybody comes from Ueshiba and either administratively was doing something different in organization or they, was do, they were doing something different in um, their physical sort of manifestation. Sure. The only one who is really slammed as that's not Aikido on the official level is Tomiki because of the competitive thing. Okay. Now, now, people in various dojos, you go to the Hikisuchi dojo and some third queue says to the Iwama fourth queue, you're not doing Aikido. That's not the way Hikisuchi sensei, you know, that kind of silliness. Right, right. right? But otherwise, it's, it's kind of understood if you're going to split off organizationally, you've got to distinguish yourself and distinguish the name. Right. Um, as one final example, um, oh, Hakuhokai. Um, there was a guy who studied with the Takamakai and then studied with Tokimune. He had disagreements with the Takamakai because when he came back from Hokkaido, he was doing things a little different. He brought sword back. Okabayashi was his name. And so he started something he called the Hakuhokai. He stopped calling it Daitoju so people wouldn't give him any grief about that's not Daitoju. Sure. So there's profound elements of Daitoju. A lot of it is Daitoju. Mm -hmm. um, but so you change the name. So just shut up. Let me do my practice. It's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> Yet another modern parallel. <laughs> right. Of, uh, you know, kind of get over yourself, stop complaining and just practice. And, you know, I, I, I do find bickering over ownership just to be kind of a, I don't know, it's disappointing. Uh, it yeah. almost seems like a pointless distraction. And, and, 
almost seems like it, it it's meant to feed the ego like my school my teacher my art is superior and and we own this that or the other and at the end of it it's you know really fighting art is goes back thousands of years and nobody can really claim much ownership over just about anything um you know and to try to brand it package it a nice slick plastic box with a cool name on it seems like a more modern uh interpretation of you know looking at at a fighting art um Mm -hmm. i don't know just i don't like the pettiness that seems to come from that kind of a a viewpoint of of an art yeah yeah it's uh I mean, if I can train with somebody from another system, Mm -hmm. I can learn something. Um, At a certain point, somebody from my own system could say, you have changed things so much. And I might agree and say, okay, I should now call it something different. And I mean, uh, uh, evolution and innovation are natural expressions, both Mm -hmm. personally and with an art when a instructor find or you know when a practitioner finds something of value and he teaches and mentors other people with it and it, it evolves um again it's a, a a thing of bickering over ownership of well you should be doing it now the way they did it 20 years ago well what other art or science is that valid like as as things advance as we learn to, to do more to know more understand better teach better all of things should evolve um mm-hmm. that's just a personal thought of mine but um you know it's not helpful to just start bickering and say well it has to be the way that it was 50 years ago well you know yeah unless it's done 50 (laughs) years ago certainly but to say that you are the the total embodiment of what that was that's arrogance to me yeah Um, yeah. i mean if some clearly you you, people have corrupted it and degenerated it let's go back right but right (laughs) yeah You know, I have an example in Hidden in Plain Sight. There's a, um, a Kitoryu teacher who also was showing up doing this remarkable technique. And one of his fellow students goes to the teacher and said, we don't know where he learned it, but it makes us all look bad. And so, <laughs> you know, because he's, he's stronger than us now. Mm-hmm. And so they handled it by basically giving him a certificate to teach elsewhere. Sure. Right? sure. And so the two lines then went on separately. Uh, and no, you know, me, I'd be saying, Hey, would you teach me how to do what you're doing? But more, that, that's really what it comes down to. Like, I want a piece of that. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah. a lot of people are like, no, 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 no. It's no longer us. And he's junior to me. So it would look bad now that I learned from him and all this kind of stuff. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad when it's the sacred cows that are being embraced over just finding out the, the truth and what works and, and to advance. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, cool. Uh, Ellis, this has been a fantastic discussion. It got deep. I will say that this is, uh, you threw a ton of detail and I like hearing, you know, all of these different things. Um, I'm sure listeners are going to dig it too. Um, I very much appreciate your time. So uh, hopefully you had enjoyed this as well. Thank you. I did very much. Excellent. Um, Well, we'll, we'll end it here and uh, take care of yourself and have a great rest of your day. All right. You too, Tristan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.